Welcome to All Things Inclusion, a podcast where I get to meet and learn from people in the field of inclusion in its broadest sense that inspire me. I hope they'll inspire you too. Today, I am talking with Dr. David Rose. In 1984, David co-founded CAST, a not-for-profit research and development organization whose mission is to improve education for all learners through innovative uses of multimedia technology and contemporary research in the cognitive neurosciences. That work has grown into a field, or evolving mindset if you like, that we know as universal design for learning, where David has flipped the thinking from ability and disability to variability, and more recently, equity. David, I've been quoting you to Irish friends and colleagues for years now, so it was a real honor when I finally got to meet you in Boston. The hour we spent chatting was so engaging. You could have talked at me for the hour and I would have loved hearing you, but you didn't. Your actions modeled UDL and we co-constructed a dialogue where everyone was engaging, sharing, questioning and learning. It was amazing. That's why I am so delighted to have you on my first ever podcast today to speak with you more about your wealth of experience with UDL and where you envisage UDL going in the future. David, can you start off by telling us a little about yourself, your background, and what it was that inspired you to explore UDL as a framework for inclusion? Sure, it's great to be talking to you again. And I've had a couple of visits to uh, Ireland that were among our favorites. Um, I hope I get to do it again. We just love being there. Um, long visits, they were really nice. Uh, so I thought I'd like to start with something that I didn't talk about for many decades, but in looking back as an old person, I realize how pivotal it was to me. And uh, it goes way back to 1963. Um, I had, uh, was in my senior year in high school and I was growing up in a, a very small farming town in rural Maine and, uh, very few kids went to college. Um, and in fact, my sister was only the second person to go out of state to college in the history of the school. Um, so, uh, I had kind of poor preparation would be fair to say for going on to college. Um, but I had a wonderful school principal and he was incredibly encouraging and helpful and so on. And I ultimately um, got into Harvard College through just, uh, you know, it was kind of like a diversity admit, you know, someone, you know, I, you know, college board scores were lousy, all sorts of things were lousy, um, but someone decided you know, to take a chance. Like here's a kid that uh, has some things going for him, went to a poor school and uh, let's give him a shot or something. I don't know, of course I wasn't there. But anyway, um, I uh, arrived at Harvard College and um, was immediately in over my head. And uh, to make a long story short, I like in freshman English, my first five papers were returned with no grade on them. The teacher said, these are not up to Harvard standards. And uh, he didn't bother. He just said, 
you know, start over. Um, and then I got my first hour exam, sort of in the midterm, I took and I got a straight F, which at Harvard College is actually very hard to get. They have kind of a gentleman C agreement and uh, getting an F is really kind of unusual. So I hadn't passed a single thing by midway through my freshman year. And uh, I realized that I was not cut out for this. And um, so I decided to go and talk to my advisor and uh, tell him that uh, I'd like to stay till Thanksgiving and then uh, just stay home because I didn't want to have the embarrassment of packing up uh, you know, during the term and all of that, but just kind of go home and just not come back. And uh, so I made, so I went to see him. But by chance, my advisor was the dean of Harvard College. His name is John Monroe. Um, and when I came in his office, I was expecting a two minute visit. And uh, he immediately greeted me with a Hi, David, how are you? You know, I've never been to Turner, Maine. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about it? And, uh, you know, and he said, and I've looked at, you know, your uh, history there and we're blah, blah, blah. He just said, you know, he obviously reviewed who I was, which I was impressed that the dean of the whole college would take any time to know what this kid was about. Um, and then he said, so why are you here? And I explained that I hadn't passed a single thing and that uh, I, I just didn't belong here is what I said. And I'm choking up now because I can never not tell this story without it. And he said, sorry, so I said, I just don't belong here and I'm gonna stay home at Thanksgiving. And he said, David, I'm the Dean of Harvard College. I am the chair of the admissions committee if anyone knows who belongs at Harvard, it's me. And I'm telling you, you belong here. And his doing that more than anything else changed my life to just say, you belong here. And then he said, so what did you get the F in? And so he picks up the phone, he calls the professor and he says, um, he actually asked the professor, who's the graduate assistant who did the grading. So we got him on the phone and he said, hi, Bill. I'm sorry we've never met. Um, this is Dean Monroe calling. And I'm sure the little assistant, no, the graduate student was thinking, oh my God, why am I getting called by the Dean? And he said, I have one of your students here, David Rose. And um, he got an F on your exam. And I just wanna say, he's important to me it's important to me that he does well here. Are we on the same page? And you can just imagine what this graduate student was thinking that, you know, my father must've given a building to the university or something. And so sure enough, I had an appointment the next day, we go over how to, all sorts of things. And um, it wasn't that he met with me every day or he didn't do anything like that, but he gave me a sense that there was someone who believed I belonged and was gonna do what was necessary. And he did. Um, so anyway, things worked out. <laughs> As uh, some of you know, I ended up teaching at Harvard for 35, 40 years. Um, 
but that was the moment when someone said you belong that uh, changed uh, changed my life. And uh, I always regret that I didn't keep in close contact with him uh, to show what an educator is like. I think it's worth saying that he left Harvard College uh, it, two years after that. And he went down south and became the head of the writing program at an all black college where people were even worse off than I was. And everybody thought it was a gesture and that he'd do that for a couple of years and then come back and be the president of Harvard. Um, but he never came back. He stayed and he worked in black, uh, poor colleges for the rest of his career. And that to me was a symbol of what a real educator is like. Uh, he wanted a hard place. And I think what I realized only in looking back at it, that I was a trial run. I was a guy that he was interested in, someone who didn't have the privileges and assets that was expected and that Harvard's job was to work to make me belong rather than that I had to, you know, fight my way in. And then he realized that even I had more, much more privileges than the people he wanted to work with. And I think just a remarkable, remarkable man. And I'm, I'll finish this a long story, but when he died, the New York times had a full page obituary about him. And at that point he was still teaching in a small unaccredited black college in the South and a full page editorial or obituary in the New York Times because someone on the New York Times, probably the editor, knew who he was and knew this is a great man. And it was just a fabulous editorial. So in looking back at it, I just realized how privileged I was to have this man be the educator in chief for me. It was just fabulous. Anyway, so that's uh, more than anything what got me on a path. And uh, it's Thank you for giving me the opportunity to just tell that story. So after that, I uh, uh, did in fact decide to teach after college and um, uh, went through training um, in being a regular classroom, high school English teacher and uh, ended up teaching in Boston public schools. And uh, there I ran into real outright ghastly racism and uh, had to uh, endure that for my students. And um, after a meeting where the head of my department said that he wanted to improve the school and what he wanted to do was figure out how we could have fewer jungle bunnies, literally said that in a meeting and I'm just like, I can't believe this. So at that's when I decided I needed to get more um, power. <laughs> so I applied to graduate school that night to just say, I, my main goal to go to graduate school wasn't to become anything. I didn't know what I would become, but I wanted to come back and fire that guy. That was my only incentive to go to graduate school. I thought if I get a doctorate, I'm gonna come back as the principal, I'm gonna fire him. And that motivated me for the whole first year <laughs> was that feeling. Um, so anyway, but I got distracted by all kinds of things in graduate school because they were neat and I never did go back and fire him. Uh, and I went through a series of teaching placements because I found it a little bit too, uh, too distancing to just take courses and, 
But what I did was I began with high school, as I said, and I worked my way down and I realized what I was trying to do was find the place at which there was the most leverage. Um, where could I make a difference as a teacher? Because by the time the kids got to high school, they were already typecast into you know, failures and successes and all sorts of things and uh, had all uh, had been labeled in various ways. And I wanted to get to where do I go? So I went all the way down to teaching preschool um, and already in preschool, you could tell that some kids were incredibly more advantaged than others. Um, and that's when I got into the brain science stuff. I wanted to know, so is this coming from the brain? You know, was, what's, so I ended up going all the way through up to advanced neuroanatomy at Harvard Medical School to really understand how the brain works and how does it get to be so different um, that we can tell it uh, in infancy, we can tell it so on. Um, and that was a sort of other than John Monroe, that was a, the other big thing was to go sort of all the way down the track to the basic neuroscience to understand individual differences in education. Um, and then I became a, someone who did neuropsychological testing, uh, which is, you know, finding out, well, what is it about these kids' brains that means they're not doing well in school? And uh, from out of that, I ended up heading a neuropsych clinic uh, where we evaluated kids. Kids came to us from their parents or their school because they were doing poorly in school. And our job was to identify them, give them a name. This is a dyslexic kid. This is an ADHD kid. And so people paid a couple thousand dollars for us to do these very extensive evaluations and give them a label. And after about three years of that, um, a group of us in the clinic were disenchanted, frustrated maybe about what our jobs were and that um, we merely labeling kids. When I would go, I had everybody go out to the schools to find out how, what happens when we send evaluations. And the answer was not much. Um, they do get a label and sometimes they got extra services but uh, their trajectories didn't change. Sometimes they got worse because they got that label. Um, and so at that time, computers were coming into our lives. Some of you that are, would find it hard to imagine that there was ever such a thing. But anyway, none of us had computers. And then some of us had a few Apple IIe computers. And um, just so you know how long ago this was, the Apple IIe computers that we started with had 32K of total memory. That's all they had, 32K. Um, the computer, not the disk, just the computer. <laughs> that's all they had. Uh, so uh, we started playing with them more than anything else and having our students stay with us after evals. So we could see what's it like to use this instrument. And, um, uh, and then we started running afternoon programs and summers and things like that to really work with kids who are on many different spectra that we had evaluated to find out, do these new things have value for them? And out of that came the realization that these were very potentially powerful uh, tools for a lot of the kids we were seeing. And uh, we decided to form a 
special part of the hospital. We were at the hospital at the time. Uh, it was a clinic that you came and now we would call it assistive technology that we would work with the kids and look to see what could we give them? What could we have the schools give them that would allow them to use powerful computers to do better in school? Uh, but again, when we would go to the schools, as a good friend at the time who was in the clinic said, you know what, David, all we're doing is creating better access to boredom. You know, that we're disenchanted with what was happening with these more powerful uh, computers in the kids' hands. It was still doing a lot of dumb things. Um, and uh, that turned us toward what ultimately became Universal Design for Learning, which is figuring out how do we use the computers to make schools better rather than make kids better. And that transition was very big for us. Um, the, because uh, it connotes what would happen that we used to think of the kids as being disabled and we were trying to fix them. And by going to the schools a lot and being there and working with the teachers and stuff about how to use these computers for their work, it really changed and we saw the schools as disabled. They didn't have good things that they were using. Books are, you know, 500 year old technologies and they're good for some kids and terrible for others and all of that. But that change in mindset to viewing the schools having real disabilities. There were kids that they were not good at teaching and they weren't great at teaching anybody. Um, that changed us as an organization. And those of you that head your own not-for-profits, I just wanna say that we had a rough period uh, where no one referred people anymore because we were, they wanted to find out what was wrong with the kid. And we would say, here's what's wrong with the school. <laughs> And uh, schools became like less likely to refer to us for a while. And um, then um, it started to grow as a movement and schools began to see that it actually was better if they um, made better schools um, and diagnosed kids less. Um, and then that became a movement here in the US and um, you know, it's very common. Most people know about UDL in the US now, although not everybody practices at all, but um, it really grew out of, uh, you know, a single clinic where we looked closely at what was happening and tried out things until we um, had some success. But so UDL grew out of real um, people who came from a disability background, but who looked at schools closely enough. We we're all educators. Um, that we wanted to make schools better and we wanted to make them better for everybody. Um, you know, the kids with disabilities were just the symptoms. There were plenty of problems for everybody. Anyway, so that's how uh, I got to UDL. Um, uh, is that a... Yeah, no, that's fantastic. That is fantastic. And like, what drew me to UDL myself as a teacher was that focus on schools and systems rather than something being wrong with the child and that's what that's what drew me into UDL and that concept of access being more than just putting something in front of them and I love that you actually talked about better access to boredom um, mm. because just giving a tool doesn't mean it will actually work but listening to your story and the heartwarming story of your, your first year in Harvard, 
I know you say UDL started in that clinic, but the seeds were really sown by that dean, weren't they? Like, because he, he, he started from what I hear, he started that journey on presuming confidence. He didn't just look at that test paper with the F. Yeah. He got to know you and he saw potential past a letter on a page. Yeah. Did you did you see that in your journey or was that a later reflection? Only later. Um, you know, I, I obviously uh, was emotional just for me to tell it again. Now it is incredibly emotional just to think about it. But at the time was part of, you know, an evolution. I mean, I was still scared to be at Harvard for the next three years, too. Uh, but uh, yeah, his view was really a view that I came to adopt and that he saw his job as making Harvard work for me, that they, he was an educator, not just a dean, that he knew Harvard shouldn't be famous just because it has famous output, should be famous because it knows how to teach and knows how to bring people uh, from where they are to uh, where they wanna be. And he had that so deep in his bones um, that he, I realized to, to go deeper into that story, I realized because of his leaving Harvard to find a harder place that actually when I looked up more about him, it turns out that he was responsible for the, um, what's the word I want to use, uh, the expanding of the pool of students to which Harvard accepted, um, that it was his initiative more than anybody else's in Harvard's history to say, we can take poor kids, we can take black kids, we can take you know kids that have had trauma. This is what we should be doing. It isn't that we should take rich kids who've had everything already. And um, he, I realize, met with the admissions committee of which he was head. And he said, probably, I'm making this up, but I think what's happened was he said, look, I wanna accept students like that. I want to accept students who we think are promising, that haven't had all the breaks so far, and that may be not perfect in some various ways that we think of, but that's who we need to take here. And if we're worried about it, I'm getting emotional again. He's, I'm sure he said, I will take them. I will take them as advisees. You know, he didn't like say, you guys figure out how to make it work. He said, I will do it. And that I'm sure he said, Give me David Rose, give me Billy. And there was another guy that I knew very well was for inner city, was the same kid. And he was his advisor too. And I'm sure he probably had 10 advisees. And I'm sure they were all the kids that Harvard thought they're in trouble. And Dean said, I will take care of them. Yeah. And that's where it was just fabulous. He said, We got a we got a strong organization here. We need to get better. And we're gonna do it. So, and then he moved on. It was amazing. But he was a, a real UDL person. He just said, there's just too many resources here. We should be able to educate anybody. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really as UDL is putting the learner front and center and everything else revolving around that. And I know in your, your UDL theory and practice book, you, you talk about that multi-directionality of everything that goes. So not only did that Dean look past the F on your paper, but he also looked past the standard outcomes that Harvard produce, i.e. 
famous people, high grades, high university rankings. And he wanted to produce real human people who were going to go out and do something yeah. in the world. And like, that's the same in our schools. We want to, our outcomes to be happy, engaged people, young people who believe in themselves because they had that one person who believed in them. And it's our responsibility to reduce those barriers. And to me, that's what UDL helps us to do. And I know you talked about your, your neuroscience pathway. And I don't have a scientific molecule in my brain. And what I love about UDL is even because you're reducing barriers to accessing UDL because you move away from the scientific language and you mm -hmm. actually talk about it in, again in human-centered language in the terms that we understand the whys and the what's and the emotion that goes with the cognitive development as well. And I'm just, how did you make that transition from that very scientific place to this more human centered and I suppose teacher friendly approach to, to UDL and inclusion and equity in general? Well, I think it's again, the same thing that, uh... We were working with teachers, uh, even though we were started as a clinic, um, we were mostly educators and we um, wanted to establish relationships with teachers that, uh, that at first made sense of uh, the reports we would write. And when we realized that they weren't doing that much good, um, we you know, we met with teachers to figure out what is it that we can do um, that would be a help instead of just another pain in the neck to get this report. Um, so um, I think that's the heart of good teaching is to really listen to the student, you know, and uh, Dean Monroe was doing that with me, you know what, he wanted to meet me and figure out and then uh, start from there. And I think UDL, uh, was blessed by being in close contact with schools all the way along. And all of the people had been educators. I don't think anybody in the beginning group hadn't been a teacher already. Um, so we knew what it was like to be uh, in the classroom with great diversity of students. Um, that's probably not a great answer to your question, but it no, it's, it's perfect, yeah. Oh. Yeah, um, and, and actually, no, go ahead. And just say one more thing that I, also as neuroscientists um, and educators that, you know, who would I think, think of Vygotsky in the zone of proximal development, that if you intend to teach and change people's behavior, you have to start where they are. You know, it's just uh, um, the only way you're really going to do it. And I think uh, that helped us to realize we need to start where teachers are now. And uh, we can't talk in language that they don't understand. And, um, and we need to be in close conversation as, as you do with a kid. I mean, that's, that was the nice thing again of Monroe. He sat down with me and talked about, the first thing he talked about was Turner, Maine. You know, he didn't come in and talk about Harvard College. He said, tell me about Turner, Maine. Yeah, and which think, again uh, goes back to, and again, I'm, I'm really thinking about UDL as you're talking, it goes back to that engagement and it's going back to how you can draw your, your students in and how you can remove some of those fear barriers 
and make them feel comfortable and welcomed in the room. And David, you, if, if my history of the UDL design is correct, you actually started with just the three principles that were associated with those three neuroscience networks of right. the brain. Am I correct that that was, that was the very beginning and then you developed your guidelines from that? Yeah. When, uh, I mean, again, I had many privileges. So I'm literally in advanced neuroanatomy at Harvard Medical School and doing human brain dissections. And the professor was fabulous. And he said, look, everywhere you look, there's really three parts to the brain. They do these three things. And um, here's how they are, you know, One's always in the back, one's always in the front, one's always in the middle. And it just stuck, you know, as a simple way to look at the nervous system. And so when we move to how, what are the things we need to be able to say to people, um, it came naturally to say they're the brain everywhere you look, it does three things that around which everything else is built. And let's start there. And so we did. And then, um, um, and have actually had that last for a long time. Um, and then we built guidelines mostly out of the research literature. So if what you want to do is make sure everybody can understand this information, then we, we I think in the original doing of the guidelines, we had a thousand references to the literature um, that said, here's what you do. If a student's blind, here's what you do. If a student is dyslexic, here's what you do and so on. Um, and we reviewed most of the literature at the time and uh, that gave us, what do we say in the guidelines? So the framework came from the neuroscience and what do you do came from educational science. Okay, and, and just kind of marrying the two of them together. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and the role of technology was just because it, technology just gave you leverage to try more things, you know, uh, as I don't know if you know, but uh, I'm just a kind of tech phobe myself. I'm not a, my wife is our tech expert in our house even. Um, so it's not that people at CASP were techies, but we did see that this is a new tool and it, like anything else that comes into a culture, it can change the culture. And so we seized on it as um, this gave more life and opportunity to a bunch of our kids, but it also gave teachers something around which um, they would have more powerful tools and could change to less boredom. Uh, as you know, too, and I'm sure it's the same as happened in Ireland, but the, there's more interest in UDL right now. It went through a kind of a bump over the last two years because of COVID, because yes. teachers got used to having technology be more important in how they uh, did their teaching. And so uh, yeah, it's jumped sort of off the charts. The teachers now go, oh, you know what? This is good. I could do this. And now they want more sophistication in how to do it, you know, to diversify. But now we're not, we're no longer pushing uphill saying that there are tools here you could use, which was the beginning. It's more like everybody's done this. Everybody's had Zoom, which you think, you know, remember none of us knew what Zoom was at the yes. beginning. Of this. <laughs> and just that all opens up and teachers became, 
um, uh, what should I say? Teachers had the, the groundwork on which to build now a more diversified curriculum that would work. Absolutely. And I don't know, um, and I'm, I'm presuming this was international as well, but there was also then the issue around technology being a barrier. So for those disadvantaged schools where they didn't have technology, and I did have people asking, how can I use UDL without technology, which was a really good conversation to have, because we need to realize that you don't have to have one to use the other. Have you experienced that as well? Yeah, we get all, always asked that. While it was the lever that allowed us to get to UDL, it's like anything else. Carpenters often do the smartest things they do without any tools, you know, and uh, that a lot of the best teachers we know of that call themselves UDL teachers uh, might be people who use technology very little, um, but they don't stand in its way. They, they don't have a problem if a kid with dyslexia does all of his homework on the computer or takes his tests on the computer because it gives them an equitable access to what's going on, but doesn't mean that they necessarily change their way of teaching in any substantial way. Um, and as I said, we've seen some of the best examples of UDL don't have any technology involved. Absolutely. And, and if it's me, there'll be no technology because it will always break on the day. <laughs> well, but what I loved about technology was in terms of inviting students in, my students used to love when I got it wrong and they could teach me something. So there oh. is that flip side of it as well. Yeah, see, that's a big thing. Uh, the change where teachers feel they've got to be the experts in everything um, is just a, a potential barrier. And that uh, the better thing, um, yeah, I'm just thinking of Dean Monroe again. First thing he asks is, tell me about Turner, Maine. You're the expert on something. I want to hear it. Yeah. And the best thing we can do with kids, too, is say, what are you an expert at already? And uh, make sure that we amplify that rather than what we tend to get caught up in is feeling like we have to be the experts. And yeah, you love it when you see a teacher goes, you know, I don't know how to do this, Billy, but maybe you can teach me. And uh and just the relationship that builds and the engagement it brings into your other subject areas, especially if they see the teacher is willing to, to show how they're struggling um, and make those mistakes in front, you know, because yeah. things happen, it's, it's life. But you're also role modeling that resilience and that opportunity um, to show students how to ask for help which you have in the UDL guidelines as well. You have that self-regulation and, and you have not only asking teacher for help, but like asking your peers for help. Like it's all built into the guidelines. Yeah, you know, you're bringing up something that uh, I hadn't thought of, but uh, we talk about uh, what's the goal, ultimate goal of a UDL um, curriculum. And we say, as much as anything, becoming an expert learner is a good one, rather than a particular set of skills or strategies that what you want to graduate are expert learners, because the world's going to change again. The technologies we're using now are going to be old hat. 
and um, something's new going to be there and everybody's going to have to learn how to do their jobs in new ways and all of that. So we really want expert learners. And the best way to get that is to do what you said, which is a teacher that shows herself learning. You know, if all the kids do is see an output that the teacher is the expert on everything, then they don't actually see the modeling of how you become an expert. And so I love it when you see a teacher say, now I'm really stuck here. Now, when I get stuck, I do, I try a couple of things. And that's, uh, so having a teacher, a great teacher I saw, kind of brought her hobby into the school to show her kids, you know, that even in something she was pretty good at, that she would keep coming up on things that she had to learn. And here's how she would learn. And I think that the more we think of ourselves as by producing expert learners, um, we need to model expert learning, not, yes. not the outcome. We need to model a process of expert learning. And uh, uh, the more of that, the better. In fact, one of the crossovers to um, issues of, uh, you know, racial bias and gender bias and stuff here in the U.S., um, that I've been thinking about a lot is how capitalizing on the idea of expert learners as one of the key things about learning to be anti-racist, for example. And that is an expert learner knows that they're likely to have old biases and old bad ideas baked into their systems. And so they do things like experiments where they actually try it out to see if they're right. And real expert learners like scientists have control groups and all these things because they know that they have biases. And if they're gonna be an expert learner, they're gonna to have to do some things that are intentional and strategic and really smart to overcome their own biases. So I like the idea of wedding anti-bias work, anti-racist work, anti-gender, blah, 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 all of that into the overall curriculum is this is what people who are expert learners do. They realize that they have these older, stupid things that they learned a long time ago that they have to overcome. And uh, an expert learner, that's what they do. It's not that it's easy for them. It's that they've learned how to do it. And a teacher, as you pointed out, a teacher needs to model that. Here's what I do. Here's how, um, here's how I learn things. That's what kids need to see. Yeah. And, and I think that is, that is where you are going with your next iteration of the UDL guidelines. So I know they started from a special education perspective, but you've always been very vocal anytime I've heard you speak about this not being for one group of students, about this being for every learner in your classroom, which is where the variability comes into it. And now you're talking an awful lot. Um, I heard your talk, not last summer, the summer before, where you talked about having a biased P. And I actually thought that was so, such an amazing way of, of explaining those unacknowledged or unrecognized biases that we sometimes have. And the work that's going in to developing the guidelines to make some of these things more explicit to educators as they are working to create these expert learners in, in a new social world and 
being able to acknowledge and say, I have X, Y, and Z bias. This is what I do about it. Yeah. Yeah, I've gone even further than then. I would say there are, you know, parts of my brain are definitely biased, racist, genderist, all of those things. But they're the stupid parts. They're the old parts. The new parts are very plastic, very learnable. And we have to, but if you don't learn, the old parts will run it. Yes. <laughs> you know, and uh, it, sometimes I analogize it to toilet training. You know, it does take some new parts of the brain to say, well, I know it'd be nice to just pee right now, right here in my pants, but um, I'm actually going to use the front part of my brain to say, no, I'm going to wait till an appropriate time. And um, learning how to use our brains in that way, I mean, toilet training doesn't take, you know, someone just saying to you, okay, stop peeing in your pants, um, takes some learning. And uh, anti-bias learning is like that. We have to say, you know what? I have to toilet train my mouth a little bit here. Um, and uh, it'll be expert learning. I have to learn, here's the kind of times when I do bias things um, and here's how I can avoid it. Um, so it's anticipating it rather than sort of waiting till you're in trouble and doing uh, stupid things. But anyway, I like to say that there's parts of my brain that remain biased if I'm not careful um, and don't uh, think ahead, um, then those stupid parts of my brain will still do stupid things. And do, do you think, David, that that acknowledgement and anticipation is what is going to lead the next iteration of the guidelines into that equity space? Yeah, I think so. I'm working on a paper to kind of just put in that process. I've been working on it for a long time. And with people I know you're gonna interview, uh, Jenna and Nicole, and they're terrific. Um, and I'm just adding sort of a neuroscience -y piece of trying to understand from the neuroscience perspective, what bias is, the kind of barriers. For me, it's a standard UDL problem that bias creates barriers just like other things. Um, and if we're gonna attack those barriers, we have to understand bias. We have to understand how to, uh, how to deal with it, how to prepare kids for it, how to prepare expert non-biased learners. Um, and uh, I just, you know, in fact, in light of what we were talking about earlier, I have learned more from uh, Jenna and Nicole than they have from me because they, probably smarter than me, but they're, they've grown up in a different world and they're ahead of me. Uh, so we have had this wonderful, we meet every two weeks, have for nine months or so. And it's a little education seminar where um, often I'm throwing out the idea and then they will say in a very encouraging way, okay, well, I see what you're saying, but here's what that makes me feel. And one of them is black, one is white, they're both women, of course, and um, had different backgrounds than me. And we're able to talk to each other. And a lot of that is them alerting me to biases that I didn't know I was expressing. And uh, it's been amazing 
process for me. I've learned a lot. And um, in one talk we all gave together, uh, we showed uh, a draft, something that I wrote where they had, excuse the expression, corrected it. They didn't correct it, but they said, essentially, this raises problems for me when you say it like this. And uh, uh, so we decided to show people, this is what education looks like, you know, because they're, in, they're encouraging, they're not making me feel stupid, um, but they are saying, you know, this is a good start. And there's something here that we need to listen to, but you need to hear what we're hearing. And this conversation is the place where we can have that happen. And uh, so it feels like a good, good, good give and take like education should be. They respect where I've been. They don't denigrate me for having, you know, some stupid ideas, um, but they're teachers and they feel like they can teach me. And sometimes I have things to teach them. It's been a wonderful educational experience. Yeah. And it, it, it re and everything is going back to what you said at the beginning about seeing past the grade or in this case the color or the the written piece of work the label the disability to seeing that potential in not only the, the person but actually as we talk I believe in the system like you actually believe in the education system and you you believe in the potential in that um, which I hadn't actually thought of before because I was always thinking about it in terms of the belief in the in the person in front of you. But actually, you, you kind of need to have that belief in system change as well, don't you? No, it's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. And I have to say, when I go into schools, I find mostly impressive teachers. I mean, they're, they're wonderful people. They've gone there, you know, there's, you know, few clunkers like in any field, but they've gone there with the right motivation and they are good at it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you're right. I believe in it. Um, and I, I don't like that we separate kids into various kinds of schools or we have private and public schools. I really am a, I know you use the word public differently, but um, I like sort of, I would much prefer one school system. We were all in it and uh, um, we didn't have any way to segregate kids by any of the usual uh, terms we do now. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I really believe in it. And I believe there are some teachers who are like Dean Monroe are just really astonishingly good teachers. Um, one thing I thought of starting with before when you asked me was starting with my mother who was a kindergarten teacher and she was one of those teachers that just is remarkable she expanded a sunday school class into a 300 kid kindergarten wow. when we lived in florida because everybody wanted their kids to go to mrs rose's kindergarten and she also was very UDL in that one way, what she did, and I remember it was just visible even to me as a kid, is that she was relentless in trying to figure out what was this kid good at? 
Whereas a lot of people in our fields seem to think their job is to find out what the kid is bad at and fix it. And my mother had the opposite point of view, which is just, she was relentless and that's the right word in trying to figure out something that Billy was going to be the best at in the whole class. And she went spend, you know, all year, uh, until she identified that. So every kid that came out of her kindergarten uh, went to first grade feeling like they were great. There were things they didn't know how to do, but there were some things that they were you know, the best at. And that was her gift, I think. And so I think that UDL is like that. Sometimes people think that it's about disability or it's about mm. uh, problems. And I think that that's a mistake and we've sold it wrong that in fact, um, it should have its focus mostly on how do we expand what people are good at. Um, and that certainly people who are good at things don't mind working on things they're weak at. Um, <laughs> but if we spend all our time working on things you're bad at, um, it's just not gonna work. The, oh, you talked about engagement a moment ago. The engagement is just gonna go. If you go to school all day and people work on your weaknesses, uh, it's not gonna work. And uh, my mother was just the opposite. Boy, every day she made sure that kid was working on his strength, not just his weakness. And yeah. UDL should make that more explicit. Every day a kid should be doing something they're really good at and getting better at it. And I hate it when you see, like kids with autism are more likely to have perfect pitch. You know, I talk about that a, long, a lot of times, but we'll make these terrible mistakes. Like we won't have them be in chorus because we say you gotta be in sort of remedial um, um, comprehension or you be in mm. socialization behavior mod class. When a lot of kids with autism would be the best vocalist in their school. And somebody should be saying, Billy needs to be in chorus and he needs to be in chorus every day. So everybody can see Billy at his best and Billy can see Billy at his best. And he's going to do better in English if he's doing really, really well in chorus. And I think UDL needs to push that more, that it should be a asset-based uh, methodology. And people, I think, still think of it as a deficit-based, that we really help kids who are having troubles. And I think we should be more emphatic about that we sh we're an asset inquisitive yeah. pedagogy. I'll, I'll, sorry, I'm scrib scribbling that down. Asset inquisitive pedagogy is just, that's going up on, on a post-it when we're finished. That's just the best explanation that I've had of UDL because that is inclusion at its mm -hmm. best, is, is when we are actually inviting students in and we're we're building what they're good at and when you talked about choir and that student being taken for social skills if they're in choir they're learning those social skills you can't learn them in isolation so yeah. not only do we focus on the weakness but then we isolate them because of it with yeah. the best intentions in the world to like sure. teach sure. them how to be social when they'd actually learn it from their peers yeah in choir yeah. 
David, this this is amazing. I I could, as always, um, listen to you for hours, but I know you are a very busy man. Um, so we are coming to the end of our conversation. So firstly, I'd just like to ask, are there any resources for further independent learning that you would like to direct us to? Um, well, perhaps I'll uh, think about that and send you a couple uh, to include at the end. Um, I know that the work that uh, you're gonna hear from Jen and Nicole has its own website. Mm. Um, and uh, I think you know where that is, but um, so my own reflections are there in a paper called uh, Cracks in the Foundation. Uh, and that goes through a little bit more of my history as a teacher in reflection, but it's written with Jenna and Nicole, and it's part of my education, sort of coming to terms with things I do and don't know. Um, but anyway, that, so that's a paper that's closest to what we've been talking yes. about. Super. And I always direct um, people to your UDL theory and practice book. Um, so I'm, I'm going to just name it here again. I think it's absolutely amazing. And it actually exemplifies UDL in its interactiveness and its accessibility as well. So anyone listening, it's free to use on the CAST website. And I'll put the link into that as well. Um, David, have you any final words, um, reflections or advice that you would like to share with everyone? Huh. Well, I think that some people think UDL is sort of a fixed thing with the right answers, and that's not a good idea. It's a, an evolving um, idea and set of practices. And uh, I hope that people assume that if they join in this work that we'll need to hear from them. Uh, the revision of the guidelines, for example, has uh, now a list of, I don't know, 900 people that we're trying to try them out and get feedback from. So um, we have a lot to learn. And this version of the UDL guidelines will not be right yet either. And I think the intent is for us to demonstrate expert learning, that we need to make them better than they are now. And then we'll get more feedback from you folks, hopefully, a lot of good Irish feedback that says, okay, well, that's kind of US centric mm -hmm. and doesn't really work here, what you're saying, or we don't like that language, or um, it doesn't work in this part of our country, um, is how they'll get smarter. And I think we intend now to revise them every couple of years mm -hmm. with what we learn from the field. So I hope people will participate in that and say, here are some ways I can make the UDL guidelines smarter. Absolutely. And I'll put a link to that consultation in the transcript that goes with this podcast as well. So David, on that note, I'll say goodbye to everyone. And thank you so much for joining myself and David for talking about all things inclusion. And I hope that you will all join me again soon. And thank you again, David, for sharing with us. This was just amazing. Um, and I really appreciate you giving me the time today to do it. Great to be with you. I enjoyed it. Thanks a million.